Hello and welcome to episode four of the Alan Parry podcast, where I interview fascinating people and then let you listen in. This episode, you're in for a real treat if you're at all curious about what makes us humans tick. You'll be hearing from Dr. Keith Jensen from Manchester University and, among other things, Keith studies apes and chimpanzees to find out what our own evolutionary history can teach us about ourselves. So settle yourself down, grab yourself a banana and listen in to Dr. Keith Jensen. Okay, welcome Keith um, to the podcast. Thanks very much for um, being a guest on it. I'm, I've been really excited to talk to you because I've, I've had a, a lifelong fascination um, at, at very much arm's length really with with apes and monkeys, you know, ever since I was a little boy, I've always loved them. Um, well, no, that's great, and I'm happy to be here. But yeah, arm's length is definitely where you want to keep them. For <laughs> well, I, I'm interested in terms of. I mean, I put something out on on Facebook that I wanted to talk to someone who who knew about these these creatures, and I didn't really expect a response. So I was delighted that your name came back to me. But you're actually a psychologist, am I right in that? Yeah, psychologist, biologist. Um, you know, I cross both worlds. Yeah. And and the interesting thing when I was I was reading up on you, Keith, is that you take an evolutionary approach, which is probably where the apes and the the monkeys come into it. So, can you explain why, as as someone who's interested in human psychology, why you'd be looking at at evolution behind that? Okay, that's an interesting question. My background was actually in animal behavior and animal biology, so for me, humans were kind of the the byproduct. Yeah, I was more interested in apes and humans, but the more I worked with the apes the chimpanzees in particular, the more I realized, wow, humans, especially children, are just downright weird. <laughs> you know, they don't behave the way that you'd expect a sensible organism to behave. I mean, for instance, kids are just too darn nice. Um, and so this is the work I was doing. I was in a whole group of people at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, who are studying what's called comparative cognition, comparing the mental abilities of other species, in this case, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans to our species, primarily kids, to get a sense of how does behavior develop throughout a lifespan and how does it evolve throughout our evolutionary history. Okay, so when you say the kids are too nice, what, what do you mean by that, that it's, it's, they're not behaving like a sensible organism? No, I mean, evolution is basically predicated on the idea of selfishness. You can have niceness up until a point, but there, it should be strategic in some way. You should be nice to others if you want them to, say, return your favors, or you're nice to somebody because they're related to you and share your genes that you want to survive for the next generation. That's the evolutionary question about cooperation, is why be nice? And I was doing this work on chimpanzees where I gave them a fairly simple test where they could choose to pull food in for another chimpanzee or only for themselves. And they would always just pull for themselves or another chimpanzee. It didn't really matter. They were just at random. Whereas children, even if they got a reward that wasn't meant to be shared, would try to give it to me anyway. And why do you think that is? You know, if, you, if, if evolution basically suggests that this is not how it should be, wh why, why are human children doing that anyway? Or is it maybe that, I mean, does that kind of imply that there's something special going on with humans there or... or or is that, does that maybe imply that evolution isn't driving us as much as we would have expected? 
Well, this is the big question that a bunch of us are trying to to get at: is the evolution of cooperation. And it seems a lot of us think that humans are uniquely cooperative. There are other species that cooperate on a large scale. For instance, ants cooperate in dramatic fashion, and they'll sacrifice their lives for the good of the group, and so on. But this is easily explained by kin selection. It's the genes programming them to do things that help the genes. You know, so they're gene machines. In that sense, and evolution—that's how it, it works. This is how we think of things. Whether humans—I mean, the same principles apply to humans, but we're also nice when it doesn't even make sense. We're kind to strangers. We help people when we really ought not to, even in random environments. It's not to say that humans are always nice. Certainly, that's not the case. But we are surprisingly nice to each other. Now, one view is that it's socialized that we teach our children to be nice, but that begs the question of, well, why do we bother? I could just as easily teach my children to kick people that are smaller than them and steal things, you know. But that's not how our society functions. So we are really special in the sense that we are kind, even if it doesn't particularly make sense to do so. And this is the question: is why has this evolved to be this way? What are the psychological mechanisms behind that? And by looking at things like chimpanzees and bonobos as well, who are just as closely related. We can maybe get a better sense of how unique these abilities are. We take them for granted, but there might be something very strange about it. So, do we get less nice as we're? I mean, I notice you that you're talking about children. There, do we start off nice and then become horrible as the world gets to us, or do we remain showing these these traits in in pretty much the same way in adult life as well? Yeah, that's that's the old Hobbes Rousseau thing. Are we inherently nice or inherently nasty? And I think yeah. we're a bit of both. In fact, um, I think that um, kindness and spite, you know, the opposite, the, the cruelty and stuff are flip sides of the same coin. Because not only are we the nicest in the species, you might, ar people argue against that, but in terms of being kind to strangers and so on, we do stand out. And so you could say this might be because we're particularly nice, but we're also particularly cruel. We're the only species I can think of that willingly tortures other individuals. And so... You know, I think that this is an interesting question. Why do we have both of these capacities? And they may share at this fundamental core this thing of empathy. Yeah. So empathy technically is taking the emotional perspective of others. Usually we mean it to be mean sympathy where we feel sad if we think somebody's in a sad situation. But empathy is having the emotions appropriate to the uh, perspective of another individual. And that can work for good or evil, if you will. So if somebody's sad, this can either make you very sad or it can make you very happy. So if somebody you don't like, say, gets an expensive car, you might feel jealousy, which is feeling, you know, unhappy at their happiness. But then if they crash their car, then you'll feel happy. And that would be schadenfreude. And by the same token, once you actually understand what a person doesn't like, you can either avoid that in their interests or torture them with it. Exactly. So if you know what it feels like to suffer, then you can use that against somebody. And so th this is not a good side of human nature, but I think both sides are built on this same core of being able to take on the feelings of another individual. And, and just going back to that, that question I asked a moment ago, because mm -hmm. um, I'm still curious about whether we grow out of the kindness or, or whether we stay with the kindness to the same extent. Are children nicer than us? Or, or is it kind of the same throughout our lifetime? 
I think it's the same throughout our lifetime. In fact, we become nicer. Like little kids aren't particularly generous at, at sharing. We have to really teach them to share, and they can be quite selfish and stingy about things. Um, you know, the whole empathy thing seems to develop through time, and we try to socialize that as well. So it's very sensitive to to the environment. As a, for instance, uh, a friend of mine has done some work on comparing kids in Germany to kids in uh, in Kenya, looking at how they share um, toys or in you know something to play a game. And the German kids would share by taking turns back and forth with the thing they wanted to share, whereas in Kenya the kids there, as nice as they were worked on the rule that the bigger kid gets the toy and the little one has to do without. So socialization is important, but it builds on the same underlying capacity. Think of, think of a, an analogy with language, which is often made. Everyone in the world, every culture has a language of some sort, but the languages, there's something like 6,000 of them, vary dramatically around the world. And so we have this core capacity for kindness but then the environment we live in, the social environment, will shape how much of that is expressed. So kids start off being both nasty and nice, but in a very simplistic, self-centered sort of a way. And then as they get older, they start to develop their empathy, their um, theory of mind uh, around the age of four. And throughout life, they continue to develop this capacity to take the um, perspective of other individuals. And whether that goes towards niceness or cruelty depends a lot on how it's socialized. So, I mean, that must be quite difficult then for you, um, digging into evolution. Um, how, how do you actually unpick what's our evolutionary nature, if you like, and our evolutionary drivers, and unpick from that the stuff which has been shaped by socialization? Well, like I said, the comparative approach can be quite useful for this. So you look at another species, um, the work I was doing was on chimpanzees because we share a common ancestor with them six million years ago. So they're our closest living um, primate relatives, along with bonobos who are just as closely related. And bonobos are supposed to be the kinder, gentler, more loving ape, whereas chimpanzees are a little bit more rough on the edge, if you will. Um, so you can look at those guys and say, well, how does, this, um, how does this behavior look? How does it develop? How does it express itself in this species? And other people look at other species as well. For instance, um, cotton-top tamarins and uh, common marmosets are small New World monkeys, which are cooperative breeders, meaning that adults who aren't the parents of the kids will help raise the kids, usually because they're, well, always because they're somehow genetically related. And the idea is that maybe they're more pro-social, maybe they're more willing to share food or help each other because they have this kinder um, evolutionary history, if you will. So that's one approach then, is you look at different species to say, what can we find that's similar to humans? What can we find that's different based on similar ecological pressures, such as cooperative breeding as being shaped by the need to have helpers, and phylogenetic or evolutionary relatedness, which is you look at the closest relatives that you've got available. Unfortunately, the relatives that would be the most useful for us to look at such as Homo erectus and Neanderthal and Australopithecines and so on, they're extinct. So, you know, we can't look at their behavior. The best we've got are the other species. And what are, what are those? I mean, you're talking chimps and bonobos then as the closest. What, what are they? What are they teaching us about 
about human nature and also what what are the conflicts because I'm aware from the from the little bit of reading that I've done just as a as a as a layperson in recent months that they do kind of organize themselves quite differently don't they chimps and bonobos in terms of their societies so that must be an additional confusion where you've got two two different strand lines basically sometimes going in opposite directions in terms of behavior well exactly i mean we there's only four great ape species depending on how you look at the genetics of it and so on but you've got your standard species the gorillas orangutans bonobos and chimpanzees and they're what we've got to work with but of course there will be differences amongst the species and as well you can expect to find differences amongst different populations so chimpanzees in west africa might behave differently to chimpanzees in east africa um but for the work of people like myself do, which is experiments, it has to be done in captive settings such as zoos and so you're just restricted to one population so you can try to generalize from that but that is one limiting factor and so you've got the limits to the number of species you can test as well as the limits to the number of individuals you can test. If I wanted to test something on humans, you know, I could go online, set up something on um, Amazon's um, M M Turk and test you know a couple of thousand people just you know in a week but if I want to test chimpanzees it might take me one and a half years to collect data on 12 guys so could you could you sort of outline the differences between the chimp and the bonobo in terms of the work that they've set up because I've just implied there that there are some differences but it'd be better really to get that from 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 your view really in terms of what you think the key differences as the as they impact your research between those those two apes. Okay, well, it might help if I also give a little bit of background to how the experiments work, which is where sure. some of this evidence comes from. But first, just to say a little bit about chimpanzees and bonobos, they're closely related species, um, and the, the bonobo is restricted to um, the Congo, and so they have a smaller um, geographical range, and there's less known about them in the field, but some of the striking differences between bonobos and chimpanzees is that bonobos are less aggressive, um, they're more socially tolerant of each other, particularly strangers, and it's a female-dominated society, even though the females are smaller than the males. Whereas chimpanzees are male-dominated, uh, fairly aggressive, particularly to outgroup members. So for instance, chimpanzee males, not the females, just the males, will engage in what are called border patrols where they explore into the territory of a neighboring group of chimpanzees. And if the group on patrol encounters fewer chimpanzees from the other group, they'll attack and kill them if they're males. If they're females, then they'll kill the infants, and then hopefully the females will join their group. This is a way of expanding their territories. It shares some similarities with human warfare, at least at the very basic level. Bonobos, when they encounter another group of bonobos, will just get very excited and hug each other and groom and, and so on. So they seem to be a much more socially tolerant species, which would suggest that maybe there's something about their temperament, their social tolerance, that has more in common with human behavior than, say, chimpanzees. It is very possible. Now, to look at this question experimentally, um, the group I was working with, and another group who was working at the same time at UCLA in various places in the States gave chimpanzees in, in three different uh, settings, all, all captive, of course. And by the way, for, for your listeners, 
these guys aren't, you know, when you think of laboratory animals, these guys aren't in small cages. These guys are in zoos or big facilities where they can move around freely, live in their social group, yeah, and so on. So, you know, as far as we can tell, they're as happy as any chimp you'll see in any, any zoo. Um, so these are the guys we work with. Now, what we did in these studies is we would give a chimpanzee a simple choice. They could choose a tray that provides food only for themselves or a tray that pulls food for themselves and a partner. Or in another series of studies, they could pull a tray of food that gives no food to them ever, but they could still be nice to a partner and deliver food to somebody else. That would be a more altruistic um, choice. And what this other group found and what our group found is that chimpanzees were completely and utterly indifferent to um, how much they delivered to another guy. They just chose for themselves and for others that it just didn't matter. Um, I, I, the initial, the working title of the, the paper I wanted to write was called, Chim I wanted to call it Chimps Don't Give a Shit, but <laughs> it just didn't seem it would get published with that title, so we called it What's In It For Me. But that was the idea. Chimpanzees were very interested in what was in it for them. There's been less work of this sort done on bonobos, but the work that's been done so far shows the same results. Bonobos are just as indifferent to what happens to another individual in that context. So at least when it comes to delivering food to each other, chimpanzees and bonobos alike just don't seem to care one way or another about what another one gets in terms of being pro-social. But of course, there's more to the story than just that. I don't know if you want to get a word in edgewise. I can ramble well, I was, on and on. I, I was just wondering, has the same experiment been done with, with humans? And, and what happens if so? So similar studies have been done with, with humans. Um, we've done this with, with children. Um, um, a group in Switzerland did some similar sorts of things with children as well, and others have followed suit. And actually, this is quite interesting because the experiment that was done with um, the chimps the, uh, that was published back in... 2006 in the Californian group in 2005, um, what we found, what we were doing basically was something that was called a dictator game in a reduced form. And this is something economists have been doing for some time. And what happens in a dictator game is it's, it's a test of pro-sociality, and I'll explain how that works. In a dictator game, somebody comes into a lab, you give them some money, it could be a small amount, it could be five pounds, or it could be up to two or three weeks wages. You give somebody this lump of money and then say they can then divide this in any way they want with someone else. They don't know who this person is, but there is a real person who will receive this money. So, so Alan, let's, let's say I gave you a hundred pounds now and said that you can share this in any way with someone else that you'll never meet. How much would you offer them? Ooh, how much would I offer them? Well, that's a very exposing question, Keith. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I'd, maybe I'd go something like 60-40, 70-30. 30 for you, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, and that's, actually, you're, you're on the generous side. Um, the Am typical, I really? Yeah, the typical amount is, well, yeah. The, the typical amount is that people would offer around 20%. Okay. Now, when I say typical and when I say people, there's a lot of scare quotes around that. But this is what's been found in Westerners like us, Um uh, one researcher now at Harvard calls people like us weird, which stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Yeah. Which represents a small minority of the human population. 
But this is the majority of the population that psychologists and economists study. Um, but this is the dictator game, and it's very sensitive to context, like whether I say, Alan, you won the lottery based on your good looks. You won the good looks lottery, you deserve this money, and you can now share with some ugly person, for instance. Then you might be less generous because you're like, well, maybe ugly people deserve less. Yeah. Or, or more typically, intelligence. If I give you an intelligence test and said you scored higher than everyone else, or if you worked harder for it or whatever, then you might be less generous. But the surprising thing to economists, at least, is that people should offer nothing. That's the rational thing to do. Absolutely. If I give you money... Money's good. Money's lovely. Um, we all wish we had more of it. And so why should you give up some money to someone you'll never meet? There's no chance of reciprocity. Um, it's not somebody who shares genes with you. It's just some random person that people typically offer around 20%. And this study has been played in various cultures around the world. Russia, Japan, um, Israel, you name it, as well as um, hunter-gatherer societies and uh, early agriculturists and so on. And the amounts vary, but people often do offer something. And this work is also being applied to children. And this is where I was quite amused because I was working on primates and also on children. And then economists who, you know, this was this game was in part modeled on, economists then took the approach that we developed for apes and children and then tested it themselves, for instance, on children. So there's been some interesting back and forth between biologists, psychologists, and economists. So it's an interesting blend of ideas that's coming into this. Now, the study I described with the chimpanzees where they can deliver food to another guy, that's not really a dictator game in the sense they're not actually giving up any food. It's not like I give them 10 bananas and say, will you be willing to share two bananas? Yeah. Because you give them bananas, they eat the bananas. That's <laughs> it, game over. So we would give them trays of food. Which is what an economist would expect, isn't it? Exactly. So, um, you know, people have been looking for what they call homo economicus and have not found it, but we found pan economicus. So chimpanzees behave like economists. And one could wonder whether economists behave like chimpanzees, but that's, that's, another, <laughs> that's, another, that's another issue. So, so why are we doing that? Why are we, I mean, that's, that thought didn't strike me uh, even when I gave away 30%. And I, but when, as soon as you said it, it's true, isn't it? Why on earth would I give away money that I didn't have to give away? Is, it, is there something evolutionarily about how we've been kind of raised through the ages where cooperation and mutuality is so important to our survival? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting question. You know, how did this kind of tendency evolve? Now, some people um, call it the big mistake hypothesis, that our psychology has evolved for early hunter-gatherer societies where we lived in small groups of individuals whom we all know and are mostly related to. Then it makes sense to be kind. It's the same as for any other species. You're kind to individuals who are going to reciprocate, who are going to be important for your survival. Um, you know, so if you if you hunt a, a uh, if you catch a wildebeest or something, you can't eat it all in one go. So you might as well share some of it. Maybe you'll get some reputation points and everyone think, wow, you're great. You're a cool hunter. Here, marry my daughter. You know, this kind of thing. Well, or, I'm, I'm just to interrupt there. I'm reading a book at the moment. I'm only halfway through it called Sex at Dawn. And it covers a lot of this stuff, actually. And um, it's talking about the evolutionary um, nature of sexual behavior and stuff like that. But one of the things it says is in those very early societies, it was actually a shameful thing 
to to hoard something privately. So everything was social. And if somebody was found with their own private uh, stash of meat, that could have led to, say, excommunication. And, of course, excommunication in those sort of very early societies was akin to death. So is, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? It is indeed, but there, there might even be more to it than that. So th- this is the evolutionary story. At some point in early human societies, this kind of thing was important. Now, to backtrack a bit to the chimps, one of the things that's interesting about chimpanzees is that they hunt cooperatively in the sense that a group of chimpanzees, again, just it's the males. The females tend not to do this, but a group of male chimpanzees will hunt monkeys, uh, colobus monkeys, which are still pretty big monkeys. They're, you know, they're not small little things. They're big animals that can fight back. The chimpanzees will chase them through the, the trees, catch the monkeys, and then once they've got the monkeys, they'll share the meat. But sharing is, again, one of these scare quote terms because they don't break off a leg here and a tail there and an arm here and hand it out to other guys. They don't seem to share on the basis of who helped in the hunt, even though the guys who helped are more likely to get some. What happens is in the heat of the moment, the monkey's caught and then whoever's closest runs and begs like mad for their piece of meat. And in some cases, they'll beg to the point that the person, the individual begging will put his hand over the mouth of the guy who's trying to eat until he finally gives up a leg or something. So there's very, very little active sharing where they actually actively give food to another individual. You this really have to lobby for your needs then in that situation. Exactly. So you, you beg your way to success. Um, this is not what happens in hunter-gatherer societies. You don't have the hunter coming back with you know, the wildebeest leg or whatever, and everyone's running around begging for food. You know, If he brags... They'll tarnish his reputation. Um, a lot of hunter-gatherer societies will say things like, oh, that's not very good. That meat's so rubbish. I don't even think I want to eat it, and this sort of thing. So they'll put him down a bit just to avoid what they call the big man uh, effect, You know, where they don't want people to show off that they're superior in any way. So there's certainly disadvantages to, to showing off, but then that still begs the question of, well, why is that the case? Because that doesn't resemble chimpanzees at all. And the chimpanzee model, in fact, seems to make a lot more sense. So why are people sharing? Why do we have these um, social effects? And one idea is that in humans in particular, that our social group is very, very important to us, very critical to our survival. And one notion then is, like I said, there's this big mistake hypothesis where people are nice to strangers just because we've got hardwired psychology, if you will for small groups of known individuals. And we just mistakenly treat everyone nicely, even though we don't have to. Another, so, so we've sorry. got some sort of evolutionary behavior that's been set in in the past and, and, and now it's outlived its usefulness, basically. That's right. That's, that's the idea. You can explain this for you know, all kinds of human behaviors, perhaps, like a fear of spiders is no longer adaptive, but we're still more afraid of spiders than we are of knives and guns, even though we're more likely to be killed by a knife or a gun than a spider. Okay, so we might have these hardwired tendencies that were adaptive in the past but no longer serve their function, as you say. That's one possibility. But on the other hand, it works so well, this being nice to each other thing. And it, it's the single most important reason for humans' rampant success. Because we're able to cooperate on a large scale, and we have a huge amount of division of labor, and as well we share ideas, that others can then take and build on, leading to more sophisticated development of ideas. This is called the uh, cultural or cumulative cultural ratchet. 
where ideas are built upon other ideas. This all comes about the fact that we can put up with each other and that we share with each other. And I think importantly that we can care about each other. We have this ability to care about the welfare of others, to take their emotional perspective, have compassion, if you will, sympathy, empathy, whatever you want to call it. We have this emotional ability that may be unique to humans. Now, if we have this thing, and others might argue and do argue whether empathy is unique to humans, but let's for the moment say it is, then why do we have this capacity at all if it's just doing nothing in particular? We could have functioned very well in our small groups without it. Now, one possibility um, is the suggestion of what's referred to as cultural group selection, where groups of cooperators do better than groups of non-cooperators. This gets into a bit of a long-winded, boring evolutionary argument, but it makes intuitive sense that groups of cooperators do better than groups of non-cooperators. The problem you have, though, is that if you're a group of cooperators, but you've got selfish free riders in the middle of your group, they do better than the ones who pay the cost to cooperate. Yeah. So you need a certain level of group competition to allow that to still benefit the behavior of cooperation. So in a sense, the best sort of strategy would be to be a, a kind of a parasite in the middle of a highly cooperative group. That's correct. The disadvantage with that approach, though, is then you just get everyone becoming a parasite, either by learning or by evolutionary means, and then the cooperation goes to extinction. So if parasites do better than cooperators, then there won't be any cooperators, and then you just end up with a bunch of selfish free riders. Yeah. So you have to think, what are the evolutionary conditions that would favor high levels of cooperation? Cultural group selection has been suggested as one mechanism that would do this. This is also a very controversial idea. There's a lot of debate in the field about how important that is in, in humans, or whether it can all just be explained by kin selection or personal um, gain, that somehow it benefits me directly. Is it possible that if, if a society was able to kind of keep the freeloaders to a minimum, um, it actually increases the need for cooperation amongst the others to survive with the, the lesser resources? And so you have societies very much like what we tend to have at the moment, well, that we've always had, I suppose, where you've got a, a top layer, you know, however they're put there. Um, and I'm thinking as well in terms of, you know, one of the things that attracted me to to um, looking at chimpanzees and stuff in a bit more detail was I often have in my, in my more, um, you know, downbeat moments, it often seems to me as though I have this thing that to myself I call the top chimp theory, that no matter what kind of... Um, democratic or other kind of structures that we put in place there always seems to be a human who acts as the top chimp and does a power grab and kind of gets away with it whether you know i've seen documentaries about people living in communes you've got democracy itself you'll have a revolution that leads to a napoleon or a stalin is there something in that you know that that we've evolved in such a way that there will always be someone who will try to be the top chimp and so no matter what the kind of formal structures are that we have on paper that we'll always end up with the top chimp rule in the clan well there's always the problem with of selfishness or self-regard like from an evolutionary perspective looking out for number one makes perfect sense or nepotism looking out for number one plus the people you care about um this is always an obstacle for cooperation 
And it's just amazing that cooperation works as well as it does, that we help each other. Um, some of it is you help others kind of incidentally. You try to help yourself, and if others benefit, fine. That's You just don't care. That's no problem. But we also do try to help each other when, you know, when situations are bad. But again, you have this whole problem of power struggles where certain individuals will then try to exploit that situation. So you create a nice little environment where everyone gets along well. And if everyone does equally well, if there's a temptation for one person to do better, you know, it's the kind of all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others yeah. kind of situation, then that will happen. And this is a continuous problem. Um, I don't know if we can ever get away from that because that's a really deeply entrenched part of our psychology. This is something that you'll see in other, all other species that they really have to look out for their own survival and their own interests. What's unique, of course, about humans is that we can plot about it, we can think about it, and then we can take the emotional perspective of others to better exploit them. Psychopaths can do very well. Yeah. Um, you know, highly intelligent psychopaths can then say, well, I don't really understand what you're feeling, but I understand enough that I can exploit that. Um, so this, this remains an interesting question. I'm still not sure how much psychopaths lack empathy or whether they have empathy, which allows them to be particularly cruel, but it just doesn't concern, they just don't care. So empathy allows them to feel what another feels, but they actually still can take pleasure out of that um, misfortune or suffering of others. So whether people are psychopaths or not, certainly there's a lot of temptation for certain individuals to um, do power grabs. And that can be a real detriment to cooperation. Why should we benefit others so that they can exploit us yeah because that's that's kind of the thing i'm thinking are, are we doomed no matter what our idealism to always have this kind of you know top top chimp thing that i call or or do the bonobos offer a different way what what are their kind of um political structures for want of a better word well they're they're not quite as nice as people make them out to be. Um, I know more people have been bit by bonobos than I do people who have been bit by chimps. They're, they can be nasty little pieces of work sometimes <laughs> as well. Um, and, you know, they'll compete over food. They're just a little less food motivated than, than chimpanzees. So they're more socially tolerant, but they're certainly not, not perfect. One of the funniest things about bonobos, of course, is how excited they get about food. Um, you know, the, it, it becomes basically a... A sexual thing for them, you know. So if food's on the table, they get quite sexually aroused, um, and will even have sex while eating. Which, you know, in terms of common ancestors, it's probably a good thing we don't share that trait. Otherwise, restaurants would have to look quite different than they do now. So yeah, so you know, who, who we share traits with or not is is certainly an open question. We're as related to chimpanzees as we are to bonobos, but bonobos seem to be kind of an odd little offshoot that got segregated from chimpanzees and for whatever reason are more feminized or more what they call neotenous or more like juveniles you know so they show certain juvenile characteristics rather than the more adult like chimpanzee behavior so there's some interesting questions exploring the role of development in in our capacities uh, for instance for aggression for kindness and so on which again makes children very interesting to look at because they've been socialized less and it's like you're cutting a little bit closer to the bone when you're asking the question of, of sociality. This is a little bit more of a raw form yeah. 
of what you see. And if you've got kids, you know how hard it is to get them to share a favorite toy or, or treat sometimes. Just, just while we're, <coughs> excuse me, just while we're on the um, the bonobo stuff, because I wanted to move on to onto sexuality, basically because if we're looking at evolution, then passing on one's genes makes sex very important and sexual behaviour. What what are the key differences if you if you think of this little triangle of the ape that's called a human and the ape that's called bonobo and the ape that's called chimpanzee? How do they differ, and also how do those two inform our own sexual behaviour? Well, I can't say too much about the sexual behavior because that's not something I investigate directly. But one of the things that you can look at, let's add uh, gorillas to the mix. Um, if you go to a zoo, like any curious visitor, one of the things that you'll want to look at are the testicles of the males. When you look at chimpanzees, their testicles are huge. Yeah. Bonobos are even bigger. And gorillas have little mini balls, basically. <laughs> and the question the, the answer is quite straightforward, is sperm competition. A gorilla male, a silverback, basically has sexual access to all the females in his harem, in his group. And so he doesn't need to produce a huge amount of sperm because his sperm doesn't have to compete with the sperm of other individuals. Whereas chimpanzees, the males are a little less sure about who's mated with which female. The dominant, the alpha, will try to mate with as many as he can, but he can't keep control of all the females and he can't keep an eye on their estrus very reliably. He can't at some point. But he just doesn't have perfect access. So he has to compete for reproduction. And one way of doing this is to produce more sperm. Bonobos will just mate with anything and anyone. And so they have larger testicles for this as well. So they're very hypersexualized. Uh, we're somewhere between gorillas and chimps. And, that, and what's the implication of that then? So if 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 we've got kind of medium sized testicles, say, um, what, what does that what does that actually mean in, in practical terms? What does that say about us? Well, we don't have guaranteed sexual access, so human females have what's called concealed estrus. You just don't know when a female is ovulating or not, and so. And what's estrus? Just to that's a that's kind of a technical term. What does that mean, estrus? Uh, just the period where they're ovulating, where they're able to sexually to actually conceive. I see. So this um, is where this is where on a on a on a chimpanzee they have these big red bums, don't they? So yeah. it's it's plain to all the male chimpanzees that they're ovulating at that moment. Yeah, whereas that's in a, humans we don't know. Right, and so this big swelling called a tumescence, which sounds like a very floral term. You picture going into a botanist and asking, you know, a flower shop and asking for tumescence. Um, but, you know, this is the sexual swelling that you get in, in the apes. And that's a pretty good indicator of when the female is ready to conceive, but it's not perfect. It's not perfectly reliable. So the, the peak period in which you can hope to inseminate a female to impregnate her is somewhere within that period, but you don't know exactly when. Whereas human females... We just don't know when they're able to conceive or not. I mean, there are some cues, but they're not very clear. What would so, be the evolutionary advantage of that? I mean, presumably, it's a good idea, isn't it, to to let everybody know when you're about to con when you're able to conceive? Well, it's a good idea up until a point, but basically, if a male knew exactly when you're able to conceive, he'd only be sexually interested in you and you at exactly that period, and then he'd just be like, "I've lost my interest now." You know, you're, you're, you, I've mated with you, you're pregnant, now I have no more use of you. Go on and have your kids and I'm going to look for another female. This is great from a male's perspective if he doesn't want to invest in the offspring. But we've got pathetic little 
maggot-like babies who need a huge amount of care. And so the best thing for the female, and ultimately the male because he's related to the kids, hopefully, is to have the male around as long as possible to help raise the kids. One trick to that is produce a situation where the male isn't sure when you're ovulating. And so he's going to do what's called mate guarding. The male's going to invest more time in being around the female so that he's got a better chance of knowing when he's able to produce an offspring. So if you say, I don't know if you're going to be able to get pregnant on the 3rd or the 16th or the 25th of the month, so I'm just going to stick around with you for the whole month just to make sure that you know when I have sex with you, you're going to get pregnant. Okay, so prolong this period and also introduce a little bit of uncertainty as to who the father is because you just if you're not entirely sure that you're the father, the best thing you can do is keep the female close as much as possible. And if you keep the female close as much as possible, then you, as a male, have a greater chance of being sure that the child is your child. And so this business of paternity uncertainty is an evolutionary way of tricking the males, if you will, into monogamy. Okay. Although that would that would um, assume some sort of um, knowledge that the you know if we're going back to the eons of time that would assume some sort of um, human advanced knowledge that we know how sex happens and because there are some societies aren't there whereby um, they they don't fully understand what we know scientifically in terms of how babies are made for instance so I, I was reading about one um, such society where. They actually viewed they viewed pregnancy as almost like a gradual thing, um, so the more that you have sex, the more pregnant you became, and then stopping having sex during the pregnancy might might damage the growth of the the baby. So there there might be different conceptions going back as to how children were actually, you know, became to be perhaps. Well, you don't need knowledge. You can use other systems, um, uh, emotional based systems, for instance, to um, to mate with a to stay around a female, for instance. Um, so, for instance, um, there's these small rodents called voles. I can never remember which vole is which. Um, let me think about that. Okay, so... Okay, so prairie voles, and I think the other one is a montane vole. The prairie voles are um, more monogamous than their close related montane voles. Okay, so the prairie voles are more likely to be monogamous. The males stick around to help raise the pups with the female, whereas another species of vole is more promiscuous, um, polygynous technically, so that the male mates with as many females as possible. And this is, the, this is the thing, this is a disadvantage females have. Once a female is pregnant, she's committed to the offspring and she has to invest all of her resources in that, whereas for the male, sperm is cheap. From a male perspective, the best thing to do is, is impregnate as many females as possible. That leaves more of your genes behind for future generations. However, if you've got helpless offspring, it doesn't matter if you get a lot of females pregnant if all of the infants die. So there's a balance between the need for parental care and producing as many offspring as possible. Now these voles, these, these rodents, uh, the one species, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's the prairie vole, has more of what are called vasopressin receptors in the in the brain. So this is a, a type of a hormone that promotes social bonding. And if the more of this you're able to have taken up in the brain, the more likely you're to form a close social bond with, in the case of a male, with a female. The other species, the more promiscuous one, 
has the same system. They still have the vasopressin, the vasopressin receptors in the brain and so on, but they've got fewer copies of them. And so all that you need to switch from a polygynous system where the male doesn't invest in the offspring and a monogamous system is just more of a particular home hormone receptor in the brain. Right. Okay, and so so even without the knowledge, there could be other kind of chemical ways of of doing the same job is, is what you're saying, essentially. Right. So you can trick a species into having love, for instance. So if you fall in love with somebody, you're going to stick around with them. That results in more parental investment in the offspring, monogamy, and so on, without any knowledge of how sex works. Okay. So move. Just I'm just aware of the time. I could talk to you all day, Keith, but I, I wanted to talk to you about war. Um, because when you look around the world or, or through history, war seems to be this, you know, permanent blight on, on, on human existence, really. And in terms of what you know about our evolution and in terms about what you know about apes and monkeys and stuff, why are we such a, a warlike species? Why are we such a violent species? Well, again, looking at chimpanzees, um, remember I mentioned the border patrols, that chimpanzees engage in this war-like behavior to expand territory. Okay, so already we see some antecedents um, in our evolutionary history, but obviously not to the same level that we engage in warfare. And also remember, too, that I was talking about cultural group selection, where groups of cooperators do better than groups of non-cooperators. But an environment which can allow that to happen is one that encourages tribalism. So a tribe of cooperators may do better than a tribe of non-cooperators. One of the ways that they can do better is through warfare. So on the one hand, you have this um, very pro-social ability to be nice to people in your group. But at the same time, you can also develop hostility towards individuals from other groups. And this, from an evolutionary perspective, can make sense. If you have, if you have a gene that says, cooperate with guys in your group, and don't be nice to guys outside your group, then that group can be very successful against a group of just be nice to everybody or just do your own thing. Okay, so this can certainly have an evolutionary advantage. Um, and this is a point that um, Darwin made way back when. So this is the evolutionary history of why uh, tribalism might be adaptive. And what, and what do we do to overcome that? So if for those of us who are... Who are looking forward to a world where we actually do live in 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 peaceful cooperation rather than warlike uh, competition what what can we do that that actually you know tricks our way around our our evolutionary wiring it's funny because uh, a few years back so these economists who took a chimp like dictator game and adapted it for kids one of the things they looked at was nepotism so in group favoritism and found it, I think, starting around the age of eight and primarily in boys. So boys, young boys, even though they weren't taught specifically to do this, were very big on promoting their group over other groups. So this is a tendency that we seem to have from a very early age. And whether this is a so-called cultural universal is something that would probably need to be investigated further. But it seems to be that all societies function with this to some degree which would again support the idea that there's some sort of strong biological tendency for that. Now, I'm not, I'm not a social engineer. I, I can't really think about how to make 
people better. I'm, I'm just, you know, looking at chimpanzees and children and trying to understand why we're nice at all. Um, but in terms of that question, one approach is to think of people as belonging to a larger community rather than saying, we're just going to focus on our own little tribe. You make the tribe bigger. So you just think of, think globally, for instance, and if you think of, I mean, for example, if you hear of a story of children starving in Sudan or an earthquake in Japan or Haiti or whatever, you might want to donate money to help people in another part of the world that you'll never meet because you feel that they're part of your community, that you share something in common with them. Yeah. Unfortunately, politically right now, it seems that the tendency is to think nationally. So the, the recent Brexit referendum suggests that people would rather think about England or Britain first rather than being part of this larger trading community. So it's very hard to get away from this nationalistic sort of um, tribalism, which unfortunately has been tearing up countries since time immemorial. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a tough ask then, really, isn't it? So those are, those of us who are seeking peace will try and um, you're advising really to to focus on creating the whole the whole human race really as a tribe, whereas it's very very easy to split each other off into into smaller tribes and for that to kind of press some sort of button in people. That's right. It's it's a bit sad because we should really know better. I mean, we do have this natural tendency towards selfishness, but we also have a natural tendency towards kindness. And it should be in our best interest to push people to be kind more broadly. Unfortunately, when times get tough, you know, for instance, you know, if, if you lose your job or, you know, if money's tight, you're going to be less likely to help somebody abroad than somebody locally. So, of course, we do want to think locally, but we can't stop thinking about others as well. Just one final question, Keith. This has been fascinating. As I say, I could carry on forever, really. But the, my final question, really, is is coming back to the influence of, I think, particularly the chimp and bonobo, isn't it, in terms of being our closest relatives, and and how they've kind of informed our our human nature. If we were to be completely true to our human nature, that's been given to us from the chimp, from the bonobo, and from our own earlier experiences. What what would how you know what how would we organize ourselves you know politically socially um, sexually and all these kind of things if we were true to human nature and in inverted commas what would that kind of society look look like? Hard to say because human nature is a cultural nature. Um, so if you thought of human nature as putting a, a child on a desert island with enough resources that they can survive, what would they turn into? That would be a very strange individual because the capacity to learn language is there but there's no language environment for them to learn. Same with a moral capacity. The moral capacity might be there but without a moral stimulus about how they should act towards others. So we have to think of humans in their natural environment, our social environment, which is very diverse. There's a huge diversity of different populations with different values around the world. Um, looking at chimpanzees and bonobos, will only tell us just so much. So, like I said, one of the questions I'm interested in is the issue of empathy. Some researchers, such as Franz Duval, argues that chimpanzees, bonobos, and other species have empathy. I argue that, yes, they're nice to some degree, but they might do it in a very different way. They might not have empathy 
in the same way that we do. So we can look at them up until a point, but they won't inform us about everything because we are very different. Yeah. Chimpanzees aren't holding podcasts, for instance. <laughs> they don't have computers. They don't have pencils. They don't have language. They don't have culture in the way that we think of culture, though there are some culture-like elements in their, in their systems. So we can learn a lot about some similarities, but the differences are quite astonishing. So, so the kind of message then is that even though we're informed by our own evolution and even though we, we carry certain um, things from um, apes like chimps and bonobos, that there's, there's an awful lot, basically, maybe even the majority that is within our own gift and, and, and is shaped by social forces rather than just evolutionary ones. Is that, is that kind of your point? That's my point. And it's not the social forces alone. Like if you took a chimpanzee, and raise them in a human environment. They're not going to learn language. People have tried, but they're not going to learn language, and they're not going to develop a sense of empathy, for instance. I, I've worked with chimpanzees and bonobos in zoos, and they're lovely, lovely guys. I love them all. They're very nice. But whenever I'd give them food, they've grown up their whole lives with people giving them food. Yeah. They've never given food back to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want them to either, but, you know, they haven't learned to share, they haven't learned to be generous, even though in a sense they've grown up in an environment where that would actually be something they could do. So we have this ability to learn from each other. So the way we learn from each other, how we imitate, seems to be unique. And our capacity to care about others seems to be special in the animal kingdom. And these things together, as well as the, have allowed us to um, develop norms and to develop societies. I just want to ask one question based on what you've said there, and it's it's just it's completely on a, off a tangent. But as, well, I watched a documentary last week, and you mentioned about language, um, and I I came away from this documentary kind of in two minds really. But it was about um, you probably know the case. It's a gorilla, I think. The gorilla's name is Coco, I think. Coco, yeah. What's your view on that? Is that is that a gorilla doing sign language, or or as the I can't remember his name, but he did a similar experiment with a chimpanzee called Nim, and he was arguing that there was a lot of lead in here, much as suppose like a medium might kind of lead somebody really. I mean, this is just for those people who haven't seen it. This is a, a kind of like a 40-year experiment of this gorilla that was taught sign language by a university student who, who still has the gorilla to this day. And I, I came away from that unclear as to whether this gorilla was actually signing and communicating using sign language or whether there was it was more imitation. What's your view? Okay, well, so the, the language thing is complicated if you think, but you have to think, what is language exactly? Like lots of animals communicate, they use complex signs, you look at the waggle dance of honeybees and so on. Animals can communicate, of that there's no question. But some of the important aspects of language, one of the most important perhaps is syntax, that it's got certain rules of construction and that you can take words to create new words and you can put words in new order to create new meaning. And so far there's no completely compelling evidence that other species, despite intensive training, are able to do that. So the chimpanzees and gorillas who have been, and bonobos as well, Kanzi's a famous case there, have been taught to use sign language in the case of Coco or lexigrams in the case of Kanzi. They've been taught to use symbols and they can use symbols as stand-ins to represent something, but there's no clear evidence that they're actually able to then construct new meaning uh, from these symbols. 
it's mostly about food, food, and I want or tickle, tickle me. Yeah, uh, this sort of thing. Um, Although Coco, even, the, the the claim with Coco is that um, she was actually expressing emotion as well, sad, happy. Is that something that you buy? No, I don't. Um, I don't know that literature well, but I'm skeptical. For instance, um, I'm forgetting the fellow's name now, but he was looking at the um, production of a group of chimpanzees in in Washington, um, Washington State, if I remember rightly, and he was looking at the production of speech. And he gave a talk once. It was quite interesting. Apparently, the sign language, the American sign language for um, black was rubbing your finger down from the corner of your eye. And so one researcher was talking, again, there's the square, scare quotes again, a researcher was talking to this chimpanzee who was saying black all the time, black, 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 and she was saying, oh, yes, you're feeling sad, are you? Oh, yes, I'm sad too. I feel sad too. Are you sad because you're thinking about, and then she was helping him along. It's like the facilitated communication yeah. debate in autism research in the back in the not so distant past. And she was reading meaning into what he was saying, whereas probably it's just a chimpanzee with an itchy eye. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so one researcher looked at all their their data in what they call the corpus. So looking at the production, not just in isolated examples, but overall, because sometimes you can produce things randomly. And he couldn't find any evidence for language production using the same tools that you would look at it in children as they're learning to speak. So when a systematic examination of the language production is done, it doesn't look very compelling. But again, this is not my area of expertise. Um, there are other people who could comment a lot better on this. This is just my impression of that field. Okay, well, that's, that's been fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to be respectful of your time, so very reluctantly I'm going to bring it to a close. Is there, is there anything else before I do that you, that you wanted to add? Not so much. I've been talking about prosociality, but the other, the flip side of it, the punishment, the spite, um, the sensitivity to unfairness is also stuff I've looked at. And this is an interesting component then, because for instance, when you think of prosociality, you can be nice to other individuals, but what do you do when they're not nice in return? And one solution then is to, to punish them. And we found that chimpanzees will um, punish in the sense of retaliate if, for instance, another individual steals from them, but they don't seem to have a sense of fairness, which again comes to this issue of concern for others. So this is an interesting part of the package is, yes, we are nice to others, but in addition to this, we have a sense of fairness, we have a sense of justice, and we will punish non-cooperators. And this is an important part of cooperation. So you mentioned the Stalins and the Napoleons yeah. and so on. One way of dealing with free riders or tyrants or anything of that sort is to be able to punish them if they behave unfairly. So you have to be able to detect when they're being unfair and to be willing to punish them when they are as well. And when people test these things, for instance, there's a game called a public goods game where everyone invests into a common pot. So everyone's given some money. They can all invest in a common pot. The pot increases in value, and then it's divided equally. If everyone invests everything, then everyone gets a huge payout. The disadvantage is if everyone contributes, but one person doesn't, then they get to keep the money they hoarded plus the money from everyone else. 
And what happens if you play this game over and over is that people start off fairly cooperative, but it quickly decreases to close to zero. Yeah. Unless you allow them to punish. If you're allowed to punish non-cooperators, even if you don't see that person again, cooperation shoots up. So again, this is an interesting point about the fact that yes, we are pro-social, yes, we are cooperative, but we also have selfish tendencies and selfish individuals. And one way of dealing with that is through punishment. Well, that reminds me of a game that the ethicist Peter, uh, Peter Singer set up, um, whereby he had the game where two people were playing, and, and essentially your first move could either be nice or nasty. Mm-hmm. And he found that the correct strategy, which would always win even when you told the other player what the strategy would be, you know, when you gave your tactics away, the top strategy in this game that he devised was always to start off with a social move, but then do tit for tat. So if someone went against you, you would punish it back, and that seems to to be very similar to the um, to the idea that you just you just outlined. Yeah. So uh, so the prisoner's dilemma is the game you're describing, and that was developed by economists and other theorists. Um, I think back in the seventies, if I recall correctly, and people like uh, Martin Novak and Axelrod and others took this game and generated a computer tournament where computers could play against each other to see well, which is the best strategy without worrying about the complexities of humans. And tit-for-tat was the best strategy, even though on a single shot, the best strategy is to not cooperate. But if you play repeatedly, then cooperation makes sense. And then being generous on the first move is one useful way forward. Yeah, I mean, Prisoner's Dilemma, just in case people miss miss what you're saying, the Prisoner's Dilemma is is where you've got two prisoners have been arrested and they're in different cells isolated from each other, aren't they? And they're offered a, a deal. Um, can you can you outline from there just so people get why it's a good strategy to to not, to, to cooperate in the first and then, you know, if, if you just flesh that out for the, what the rules of prisoner's dilemma are just so people can get a handle on that. Certainly. So the prisoner's dilemma is one of a whole suite of games that economists and evolutionary biologists and so on like to use to figure out why is cooperation difficult? We take it for granted, but there's reasons to not cooperate. Um, the Prisoner's Dilemma will be familiar to people who've watched the old game show Golden Ball. Is it Golden Balls or Golden Ball? I can't remember. Anyways, in, that, in the Prisoner's Dilemma, the basic idea is, like you say, you've got two prisoners who can either cooperate with each other or defect, which basically means to not cooperate. If they both cooperate, they both get a moderate prison sentence. But if they... Uh, the best strategy, though, is to defect because if you know your other partner is going to cooperate, but you defect, then you get away scot free, and he gets the maximum prison sentence. Yeah, but he's thinking the same thing of you. So even though mutual cooperation is the best overall strategy, the best individual strategy is the selfish one. And both people knowing that, the rational thing to do is to both not cooperate. This is why cooperation is difficult. And this is why repeatedly playing a game is the way of getting cooperation. Because if you play the game repeatedly, yes, it helps to be selfish on the first, on the or if you play just once, it helps to be selfish and not cooperate. And I guess but, that's the difficult difficulty in our society, rather than those societies that you spoke about near the beginning of the show, where you were talking about everybody knows each other and you're in close contact. In our society, it's very possible, isn't it, to play these prisoner dilemma games just once and then never be seen for the second round. That's right, and it's, um, this is why it's difficult for societies like ours to function. This is and reciprocity. You know, basically, you're nice to me; I'll be nice to you. 
and so on and so forth, it's hard to find good evidence for this in nature. Um, it seems like a very straightforward idea, and there are some examples, but the, it's not as compelling as you would think it would be. Whereas in humans, reciprocity, um, reputation, and other factors are very important, and they allow us to function even if you never see somebody again. I mean, why do we tip in restaurants that we may never go back to, and why, if you forgot to leave a tip, you might feel horrible afterwards? Mm -hmm. You know, if that person won't know you, you don't know them, and so on and so forth, but you really feel like you should have done something nice for them. And so reciprocity, um, tit for tat, um, this sort of thing, is a mechanism that could allow this sort of strategy to work. And psychologically, it might just be that we actually care about other people that allows reciprocity to take off in the first place. So a huge thank you there to Dr. Keith Jensen. I had a fabulous and fascinating hour in his company and I hope you enjoyed it too. The Alan Parry podcast is now available on iTunes, so please head on over there and give the show a juicy big five-star review. That will really, really help me out. And you can catch the previous episodes there too. Or you can visit alanparry.co.uk. Remember, the Alan is spelled the Welsh way, A-L-U-N. And there you'll find all past episodes and all of my blog posts too. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.